Well, uh, if any of you guys are Seinfeld fans, uh, some of you guys may have noticed uh, Jerry often has a thing that he hates uh, and has an issue with the medical profession. All right, so uh, through a lot of his episodes, through a lot of his shows, he is constantly poking fun of the medical profession, their fragile self-egos, their need to constantly prove to us that they know more than we do. So uh, he's got Kramer posing as a dermatologist to show that really the medical profession, as Jerry will say in many ways, is all about external symbols, which is why you and I have to often go into tiny little waiting rooms, which is why doctors have to constantly put all of their degrees up on a wall while we wait on their professional medical opinion, and as we wait pantless, even though the appointment has nothing to do with our lower torso sometimes, right? Uh, they want to prove to you and I that they are legit, which is why Jerry constantly is poking fun at those external symbols, and that if someone would just mimic them, if someone would, in a sense, pick those things up, someone could pose even as a dermatologist, even Kramer, all right? Uh, in many ways, what we're going to see this morning as we look at Philippians chapter 3 is that Paul is going to really, in a sense, pick a page out of Seinfeld's book, or maybe vice versa, and in a sense, show us some spiritual posers. Some people that could, in a sense, dress the part, talk the part, look the part, but they were actually nothing more than simply a spiritual poser. There was a group of people in Paul's day that really were all about external symbols, all about really the external visible elements that look like religiosity, but it has nothing to do with really what is the very essence of spirituality. Particularly in Philippians chapter 3 this morning, Paul is going to really, for us, compare and contrast counterfeit spirituality with true spirituality. One that is all about symbols and one that is all about substance. And really for you and I this morning, I think Philippians 3 really comes at where a lot of us sit. I think for a lot of us, whether we are trying to get into this thing called spirituality or whether we are trying to walk in it, so many of us, I think, get caught up in the symbols and the outer workings of really what is this whole thing called spirituality. And I think what Philippians 3 will do for us is really take us back to the basics in a sense. Uh, In fact, Philippians 3, as he kind of walks us through, is going to tell us that this thing is all about joy. So look with me, if you will, Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 11 is where we're going to be this morning. Philippians chapter 3, Paul writes this. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things again is no trouble to me and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ." More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith so that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Will you pray with me? Father God, we give you great thanks for your word. Father, I pray this morning that as we open it and as we walk through it, Lord, I pray that you would teach us. I pray that your spirit would come uh, in the midst of this time and that you would do a work beyond anything that we could expect. Pray that you would remove distractions, that you would remove the different things going on in our minds and our hearts from this week and from this weekend. And I pray that you'd allow us just for a pocket of time to hear you. Even more so, Lord, I pray you'd allow us to see you. I pray that we could see you in a clear and direct way and that you would encounter us this morning as we open your word. A passage that is all about your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that we could see him this morning. I pray that we could have an interaction for some of us, maybe for the first time with a risen savior this morning. 
For some of us, Lord, I pray that we could return to the one whom we first loved and that we could see him in a fresh way this morning. I pray that you would remove us and return us back to the basics, uh, to fresh reminders as to what this whole thing is all about and as to ultimately what you desire in our lives and what you want most from us. Father, I pray even for me in the midst of my own weaknesses and insecurities, Lord, I pray that you'd allow me not to be a hindrance to this time, um, that you'd allow my words to be yours and that you'd speak just as you desire this morning, Lord. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. We take you guys to verse one. I want you guys to see that really Paul's concern this morning is all about one thing primarily. Look with me at the command he gives us in verse one. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me and it is a safeguard for you. Paul's concern in chapter three really is our joy. Uh, It has been this joy that Paul has talked about throughout the book of Philippians. It is one of the most reoccurring themes throughout the book, all the way back in chapter one, chapter two, here in chapter three, and we'll pick it up again even in chapter four. The idea of joy is central to Paul as he writes this book. Some have even said it is probably maybe the dominant theme of the book, you and I and our experience of joy. Paul's concern, though, is that there are opponents to their joy. There's particularly, as he looks at counterfeit spirituality, there are some who are trying, in a sense, to steal their joy. There are some that are opposed and they're producing an argument and a kind of religiosity that is actually very much designed and will in very much in effect steal their joy. In fact, he's going to, in a sense, identify these opponents in verse two. And in a sense, he's going to call them not just literal dogs, but he's going to eventually take a big stick and just poke them. All right. Notice what he says in verse two. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. Paul rattles off three different, uh, in a sense, descriptions of these opponents. He starts off with dogs, all right? And this is not the precious little puppy dog that you give your girlfriend right before you want to propose to her as the, you know, in a sense, uh, the precursor to the ring, all right? Uh, This is not the kind of dog he's referring to, right? This is more of your stray, rabies-carrying, nasty-looking dog in a back alley, all right? Uh, This dog is not a a kind word, all right? And he's referring this to their opponent, his opponents. In fact, he's going to highlight them even more as he says that they are evil workers and they are of the false circumstances. Circumcision. As Paul kind of highlights and describes this audience, he's really letting us know that his opponents are from an ilk and, and, and an aspect of Judaism, right? An aspect and from a school of thought that he actually had come out of and, and as he came out of Judaism as a Jew. And so he's referring to a group of people that, have, that are impacting the church of Jesus Christ that have roots and have a basis in Judaism. In fact, as he, in a sense, pokes fun at them and as he sticks them with a stick and and makes them angry, he's taking that which is really one of the most precious descriptions of them and the things that they held dear in terms of circumcision, and he's going to, in a sense, insult them with their own descriptive word. And when he says that they're of the false circumcision, literally what he's saying is that they are nothing more than mutilators of the flesh. Strong language, all right? Uh, And for those that consider that to be one of the most precious things to that community, he is just absolutely angering them, all right? In many ways, it kind of made me think back to uh, even when you were on the playground, that people could say all kinds of things about you, but the moment they talked about your mom, it was fighting time, right? Uh, even in marriage, right? Uh, I can say all kinds of things about my mom and her horrific cooking, if that was the case, all right? I'm not saying it is. She's a great cook. But I can insult my mom all I want, but the moment that my wife says something negative about my mom, <laughs> all right. She doesn't do that. All right. Just for illustration's sake. All right. But just kind of clear that up. All right. Uh, she doesn't necessarily ever say anything negative about mom. They have a great relationship. But the moment someone, whether it's in marriage or even on the playground says anything about your mom, it's fighting time. Right. Because there's certain things that are just precious to you. All right. What Paul is going to do here in a sense is refer to their religious mom. All right. Uh, as he pokes at Judaism, basically he is not just identifying his opponents, but he is actually taking them right at what they hold most precious and rebuking them for it and saying that there's something wrong with their mother in a sense. All right. Uh, 
In a sense, he calls them not just dogs, but he takes a big sharp stick and just pokes them right where it hurts most, right where they get the most angry. And ultimately what he's going to do is he kind of not just identifies them, he's going to show us really what was the content of their message. What were they doing? All right, they were all about and putting forward a design and a system that was all about symbol and had nothing to do with substance. What this group of people wanted you to do in the game they wanted you to play in terms of religiosity was all about external symbols and had nothing to do with an inner essence or an inner spirituality. It was all about symbol over substance. In fact, I want you guys to notice really as Paul walks through this, we're going to see in a sense that there are certain external, certain kinds of symbols or signs that were markers of a spiritual insider, so to speak. There were those who were part of the club, so to speak. And Paul is going to, in a sense, walk through the differing symbols that these people had put forward as, in a sense, what he's going to see as counterfeit spirituality. And he's going to talk about himself because he was one who came forth from Judaism. And he's going to say, in terms of all the symbols that you think are important, I have them all. Notice what he does. He starts back in verse 5. And he's going to go to really the first symbol, really, of an insider status, according to these opponents, which was circumcision. And he says of himself that he was circumcised the eighth day. That in terms of the markers of being a spiritual insider, Paul says, I got this one covered. In fact, it wasn't just circumcision that in terms of these opponents that they saw as a, as a symbol or a status marker of being a spiritual insider. But he goes on further and he talks about ethnicity and heritage. And he says, it's not just that he was circumcised on the eighth day, but he was of the nation of Israel. It wasn't just that he had an outward marker of being a spiritual insider, but he had a heritage that proved that as well. He was from the right family, all right? He was from the right ethnicity. He was an insider. In fact, he's going to go on further to say that not all insider markers and symbols of externals are, are all the same. In fact, there are some that are even more important. And he says it's not just that he's of the nation of Israel, but he's of the tribe of Benjamin. He's from an elevated ethnicity. He's from the prized family. He is an insider of insiders. In terms of the external markers of being a spiritual person belonging to the right club, so to speak, Paul says, I got him. I got the right ethnicity. I have the right heritage. I have the right uh, external signs. I'm wearing the right thing. I look the right part. Paul says, I got it all. In fact, he's going to say it's not just what he's inherited, but it's what he's done with what he's inherited. And so he says next, that he's also a Hebrew of Hebrews. What's Paul saying? I think Paul is saying that, that in light of what he inherited, he maintained it. He was from the nation of Israel. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. He had the right roots. He had the right ethnicity. He had the right background and he maintained it and he cultivated it. There were those in the Greco-Roman world at the time that were of the nation of Israel from the tribe of Benjamin, but they had sold out to the culture of the day. They didn't want to be Jewish. In fact, they wanted to get as far away from their ethnic roots as possible, and they wanted to blend into the culture in the day and the time. And Paul says, no, no, no. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was not just of the nation of Israel, but I wanted to cultivate these roots, and I wanted to remain, in a sense, a Hebrew purist. So he was trained under Gamaliel. He knew everything about Hebrew, about the law. He was raised up in that heritage to the extent that you could be. He had all the right external markers of being a spiritual insider. He had circumcision, he had heritage, but it wasn't just the markers of those things that he inherited, but it was also based on his performance that he's going to go to next. That there are, in a sense, markers that denote that you and I belong to the right group, but it's also markers that denote that you and I not just belong to the right group, but that we are elite in that group. And what Paul is going to say is, in terms of the system that these opponents had designed, he had all of the right markers. It wasn't just that he was an insider, but he's going to say next that I'm an elite one within this group. And so look what he says next. Um, uh, as to the law, he says he was a Pharisee. In terms of his own performance, in terms of his handling of the rules and the regulations, he performed as well and is as high of achiever as you could possibly be. 
Pharisees were those who took the, the law very seriously. They actually added to the law with all kinds of ordinances and decrees. Uh, and so that you would create an incredibly elaborate system of legalism. That was all about performance, all about how you performed. And Paul says, I was a high achiever. It wasn't just that he was a high achiever. He's going to say, I had high passions as well. Because as to zeal, he was a persecutor of the church. Paul says, I performed as well as you could be. And I was as passionate as you could be for this. In terms of the markers of what I inherited and even then how I performed, I had all the right markers that you could possibly have. And he adds one last one on here. And he says next, at the end of verse uh, six, he says, as to the righteousness which is in the law, he says, I was found blameless. It's going to be interesting because in a few verses later, he's going to talk about the righteousness which you cannot find in the law. But what he's going to say here is, as as well as the law can measure righteousness, I measured as well as you could. I inherited all the right things and I performed as well as you could. And in terms of the system that these opponents had created, he says, I had all the right markers of being a spiritual insider and all of the right markers of being a spiritually elite person. In terms of all the symbols that you could have, I had it all. Which is why Paul and Paul alone in a way that no one else could will turn the tables on his opponents. And he's basically what he's going to say is that this entire system that they had created is in Greek what we call skubula. All right. Uh, basically what he's going to say is in terms of what they had created, he's going to say this entire system, you need to just scrap it and flush it down the toilet because it is nothing more than scrap. In fact, the word he's going to use is scrap without the S. All right. He's going to say ultimately that all these markers, all these things that they had created to say that they were worthwhile as a spiritual insider or a spiritually elite person, all of these things, Paul's going to say, you need to just scrap it and flush it down the toilet because it is absolutely worthless. In terms of the Jewish game that they had created, he says, they can say, I played the game. In fact, he says in verse four, uh, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, and if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. In terms of the game that these Jewish uh, opponents had created, he says, I can play your game and I will compete and win the game every single time along with you because no one can stack up and compete with me in the way that I was raised and the way that I performed. No one can. I have all of your markers of being an insider and all of your markers of being an elite person and no one can measure up to me, which is why his criticism is more damning than anyone else's. When he essentially is going to say that you can take this entire system and you can just flush it down the toilet because it is worthless. In fact, it's not just worthless, but he's going to say it's actually a hindrance to actually knowing Jesus Christ. Look at what he says in verse seven. But whatever things were gained to me, in terms of all of these symbols of external markers of spirituality and religiosity, in terms of all of these external markers, all the things that I gained and had and performed in, those things I've counted as lost for the sake of Christ. All those things that he had accrued, he says, let me just flush them down the toilet because they are absolutely worthless. Let me just lose them. More than that, let me count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish. I don't know what your translation says. The NAS will say rubbish, which, you know, again, has the idea of garbage. You should just throw all of these markers, all of this stuff in the trash. The Greek is literally there, often translated excrement. All right. Although Paul doesn't use the nice, clean, scientific word for excrement. He uses one that's far more crude, which is scrap without the S. He says it's just worthless. All right. And he's trying to raise the point and he's trying to be almost offensive to show to those that were operating out of this system and in this game. He says, this is absolutely worthless. It's not just worthless. It's an absolutely a, a huge hindrance to you actually knowing Jesus Christ. Do you actually to have a relationship with Jesus and to walk with Jesus? All of these external symbols are absolutely an actual hindrance to you actually knowing and walking with Jesus. 
Don't get caught up in all the symbols because you will miss the substance of an actual walk and relationship with Jesus Christ, which is what Paul says I'm all about and what I want. I want a relationship with Jesus Christ. I don't want all the external markers of religiosity. It's actually fascinating as you kind of walk through this because I think Paul is going to hit us uh, in a way that these Jews were playing a game, but I think we play a game as well, right? The Jews' markers for being a, a spiritual insider, one who belonged to a club, look incredibly different than ours, right? But we have ours. We know how to play the part. We know how to dress the game. We know what to wear. We know who to be around. We know how to look the part of those who are religious, right? So a lot of you guys, uh, you know, have your cross jewelry. You have your cross rings. A lot of you guys like to wear your Christian t-shirts. Maybe put a verse on the back because that really means that you really belong, right? Uh, A lot of you guys like to post things on Facebook so that you play the part and you look the part and you belong to this Christian subculture, right? Uh, Maybe some of you guys even came from the right family. You were raised in a Christian home. Maybe some of y'all even went to a Christian private school. Maybe you even homeschooled. Maybe you have all the right markings of an upbringing and you can look the part, dress the part, be around the right people. And so we play the game as well, right? We want to look the part. We want to fit in. We want to keep everything on the externals looking very religious. In fact, it's not just that we want to inherit certain things or dress the part, but we have certain markers also that denote not just that we belong, but that we are of the elite ones, right? What are ours? For some of you guys, I think it's how we perform in this Christian world, right? Do we do the right things? Do we avoid the right things? What does our past obedience to God look like? What have we done for God? As if we are since unfolding a spiritual resume to prove to everybody else that we belong and that we are a cut above everybody else in this spiritual subculture of A&M and of Christianity here. You and I play a game as well. It looks different than it did for Paul's opponents, but I think you and I stand in the exact same spot. We so often can get caught up in the externals of religiosity that we can miss the very point of this whole thing. So many of these things are good. It's great to walk with Jesus Christ. It's great to go on a mission trip. It's great to serve the Lord. It's great to uh, profess your faith even through externals. And yet sometimes those externals can become hindrances and they can become substitutes for actually knowing Jesus Christ. For some of us, we want to do all the right things and we want to serve God, but we may not actually want to know and meet with God. It becomes easier to serve God than it is to walk and to know God. Because then we've got to slow down. Then we've got to do something that doesn't always make us feel so good about ourselves and that it's not so visible to everybody else. And what Paul does for his opponents, I think is the same thing he does for you and I, is his, in terms of all those external markers, realize that apart from the substance of a relationship with Jesus Christ, they are absolutely worthless. It doesn't matter where you grew up. It doesn't matter that even you attend church. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, then you've missed the entire point of this whole charade and this whole exercise. And so Paul is going to say all of these markers, throw them away because ultimately what's absolutely critical and what's absolutely crucial is a relationship with Jesus Christ. Everything else is simply worthless to you and I. So in a sense, Paul is going to in a sense, construct for us really what does true spirituality look like? And the first thing I think he does is he's going to, in a sense, to distrust the flesh. All right. Notice with me back to verse three. He says, but we are the true circumcision. Here is true spirituality. We are the ones who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. The last marker there Paul puts really of true spirituality, I think is really the starting spot. That for you and I to not put confidence in the flesh, it means that you and I have a realization that we can merit nothing before God himself. There's nothing you and I can do to earn a relationship with Jesus Christ. And then once we are in a relationship with Jesus Christ, there's nothing we can do to make him love us more or to love us less. You and I enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ by faith on the basis of what Christ has done and not on the basis of what we have done. 
And having entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ, things don't change. The game doesn't change. It's not now about what you can do for God and as if you're trying to pay him back for all he's done for you. We very quickly move into really what is a kind of legalism, a kind of uh, amassing and accruing of externals, even if it's our obedience, as if that is what makes us elite, as if that is what makes God love us, as if that is what makes people think highly of us. It's fascinating how for some of us, we don't enter into the game that way, but then we begin to play the game that way once we've gotten into this thing, as we begin to know Jesus Christ. I think Paul is going to be really stunning and really strong here to say that you and I cannot begin this relationship with Jesus Christ and we cannot walk in this relationship with Jesus Christ unless we have a clear distrust in our flesh and our own merits and our own abilities. Notice what he says in verse eight as he continues on. Let me, let me pick back up. He says, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him. Well, how, do you in the, how in the world do you and I gain Christ and how are we found in Christ? Notice what he says in verse nine. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, meaning I can't obey all the right rules and regulations and earn the approval of God and be righteous. But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. How are we found in Christ? It's not on the basis of righteousness that we merit by obeying and doing all the right things. It is on the basis of a righteousness that God grants us on the basis of what he has done for us. You and I cannot work up enough righteousness that we have enough currency before God. There's only really, in a sense, one currency that God takes, only one currency that God is dealing with, and that is righteousness. And the problem is we are absolutely bankrupt in terms of that currency. You and I are born dead in our sins. We are lacking righteousness. And so the one thing that we need before to enter into a relationship with God is the one thing that we cannot offer. Uh, growing up, uh, I used to throw the baseball uh, in the side yard with my dad all the time. And before I had that stage where I was really coordinated, at one point I threw the baseball right through uh, my neighbor's window. All right. So uh, glass goes crashing everywhere. Uh, angry neighbor comes running out, uh, screaming in a sense that neighbor's wrath and anger was kindled against me because I had offended them. I had transgressed the boundaries, whether visible or invisible of our homes, right. And come crashing through into their house. Right. Uh, and so what was I going to do to, in a sense, appear He's the wrath of my neighbor, right? Uh, either I can just take it or uh, I got to fix this window, right? You know, the only thing to, in a sense to repair our relationship was to fix the window. But the problem is I didn't have the currency to fix the window, right? I was an only, uh, I was an only child, a young kid who had no money whatsoever because lemonade stands weren't going to fix a window, right? And so what had to happen is where you can guess the story's heading. My father had to step in for me with a currency that he possessed to pay for the bill that was mine, in the moral of the story and the analogy, what I'm saying is that in a sense for you and I that have offended God, whose wrath has been angered because he is holy. We do not possess the currency to fix the issue. And so what God has done on our behalf is he sent his own son, Jesus Christ, who died in our place so that Jesus could in a sense, take our penalty and he could bring his currency into the equation and he could pay the bill for us. And so what Jesus has done is he's provided us his own righteousness Uh, The only currency that we can have before God is a currency we cannot merit or earn. It's one that Christ has provided to us. And so the way that you and I are saved is not on our own righteousness, but it's on the righteousness of one that has been passed to us. That is Jesus Christ. We've received an alien righteousness. If you know Jesus Christ, because it is one that is foreign to us. It is one that is not our own. and is one that Jesus has provided. And so as we get into this, as we look at what true spirituality is, it is all about a realization to begin with that you and I are absolutely bankrupt before God. There's nothing we can do to merit the approval of God. And the one thing we need is the one thing we don't have. And yet it is the one thing that Jesus provides for us. 
his own righteousness as he dies on a cross for us. And so what true spirituality is, is all about a starting spot that realizes, hey, there's nothing I can do to enter into this. And having entered into it, trusting in Jesus Christ for his, by his death and his resurrection, who has conquered death for us, we don't continue on the basis of what we can do either. And this whole thing is on the basis of a pursuit to know Jesus Christ. This whole thing is about Jesus. So not about external trappings of religiosity that make us look the part, dress the part, sound the part, but in reality, it often is all about us, right? What religiosity is, is all about a really a stacking and accruing of merits and external markers that show and highlight that we are righteous. And yeah, really what spirituality is truly and what Christianity is calling you and I to is a brokenness and realization that there's nothing we can do. And yet there's only one that can do it on our behalf and it's Jesus. And therefore you and I have to realize that you and I cannot trust in and of ourselves, our own resources. We are in desperate need of a savior because this entire thing is about Jesus. And ultimately what's infected and what's, what's being having to be deconstructed in this passage is something that's so familiar to you and I as well in our culture, in our day and time, Uh, a removal from self-reliance, a walk away from uh, self-dependence, a realization that there's nothing that we and ourselves can do to merit the approval of God. And so what I want to do for you guys, just at this moment to kind of hit a pause, is show you guys a clip of a video that a lot of you guys have seen that's circled on YouTube. You know, this is one of those times I feel like someone has said something far better than I ever could try it this morning, so I want to let him say it. And I'll tell you guys, as I run this clip, there are pieces of this clip that I wouldn't necessarily agree with, all right? There's some things he's going to say about the church that I would not necessarily agree with, and yet, by and large, the main point he's trying to make, I think, is spot on with what Paul is saying here in Philippians 3, in which we see that Jesus is so much greater than religion. What if I told you Jesus came to abolish religion? What if I told you voting Republican really wasn't his mission? What if I told you Republican doesn't automatically mean Christian and just because you call some people blind doesn't automatically give you vision? I mean, if religion is so great, why has it started so many wars? Why does it build huge churches but fails to feed the poor? Tell single moms God doesn't love them if they've ever had a divorce, but in the Old Testament, God actually calls religious people whores. Religion might preach grace, but another thing they practice, tend to ridicule God's people, they did it to John the Baptist. They can't fix their problems, and so they just mask it, not realizing religion's like spraying perfume on a casket. See, the problem with religion is it never gets to the core. It's just behavior modification, like a long list of chores. Like, let's dress up the outside, make it look nice and neat. But it's funny, that's what they used to do to mummies while the corpse rots underneath. Now I ain't judging, I'm just saying, quit putting on a fake look. Because there's a problem if people only know that you're a Christian by your Facebook. I mean, in every other aspect of life, you know that logic's unworthy. It's like saying you play for the Lakers just because you bought a jersey. See, this was me too, but no one seemed to be on to me. Acting like a church kid while addicted to pornography. See, on Sunday I'd go to church, but Saturday getting faded, acting if I was simply created to just have sex and get wasted. See, I spent my whole life building this facade of neatness, but now that I know Jesus, I boast in my weakness. Because if grace is water, then the church should be an ocean. It's not a museum for good people, it's a hospital for the broken. Which means I don't have to hide my failure, I don't have to hide my sin. Because it doesn't depend on me, it depends on Him. See, because when I was God's enemy, and certainly not a fan, He looked down and said, I want that man. Which is why Jesus hated religion, and for it he called them fools. Don't you see so much better than just following some rules? Now let me clarify. I love the church, I love the Bible, and yes, I believe in sin. But if Jesus came to your church, 
would they actually let him in? See, remember, he was called a glutton and a drunkard by religious men. But the Son of God never supports self-righteousness, not now, not then. Now back to the point, one thing is vital to mention, how Jesus and religion are on opposite spectrums. See, one's the work of God, but one's a man-made invention. See, one is the cure, but the other's the infection. See, because religion says do. Jesus says done. Religion says slave. Jesus says son. Religion puts you in bondage while Jesus sets you free. Religion makes you blind, but Jesus makes you see. And that's why religion and Jesus are two different clans. Religion is man searching for God. Christianity is God searching for man, which is why salvation is freely mine and forgiveness is my own. Not based on my merits, but Jesus' obedience alone. Because he took the crown of thorns and the blood dripped down his face. He took what we all deserve. I guess that's why you call it grace. And while being murdered, he yelled, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Because when he was dangling on that cross, he was thinking of you. And he absorbed all your sin and he buried it in the tomb, which is why I'm kneeling at the cross saying, come on, there's room. So for religion, no, I hate it. In fact, I literally resent it. Because when Jesus said, it is finished, I believe he meant it. I think he says it far better than I could in many ways, right? Uh, I, I think there is, in a sense, in what religion is or counterfeit spirituality, there is an accruing of external visible signs that show that we can merit the approval of God and can show to everyone else that we look worthy as well to be a spiritual insider. I think ultimately what Christianity and what true spirituality is all about is first a distrust of self that realizes there's nothing I can do. I'm broken. I'm in desperate need of a savior. And it is not about what I can do, but about what has been done on my behalf, whether to enter into a relationship with Jesus or to even begin to walk with Jesus. If you know Jesus Christ this morning, your performance, your failures, your obedience and victory does not make Jesus love you any more or any less. And that is so different than any other relationship that you and I have ever experienced, right? That God's grace could be absolutely unconditional no matter how we perform with, with whatever rules, regulations, and visible external markers. Because all of those can be counterfeited because they can all obscure and mask really the true reality and substance that's beneath. The ultimate thing that I think Jesus wants for your life is that you would know him and that you'd have a relationship with him. And that's not just the starting spot. That is the continuing marker really as you move forward in a walk with Jesus Christ, that you would know him more and more. Notice it is really Paul's defining, in a sense, critical priority in his own life. Notice what he says as we kind of move on. Uh, He says really back to verse 8, he says, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He goes, get rid of all the externals because the primary assumption, the primary drive of my life is to know Jesus Christ. And he ends it again at the end of verse 8, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him. Look at verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Paul says, I want to know Jesus all the way from his sufferings to his resurrection. I want to know all of Jesus, and that is the defining characteristic of my life. And so he says, everything else I count and evaluate as to whether it's a hindrance to that goal or, or, or an enhancement to it. And so he says all of these external markers, really for him, he realized were often at times a hindrance to the goal to know Jesus Christ and just to walk with him and to have a relationship that was ever deepening with him. Let me just tell you this morning, if you don't know Jesus Christ, the greatest desire God has is simply that you would know him, which is why he sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to die in your place so that you could be reconciled with him so that he could do what you could not do. And if you know Jesus Christ this morning, let me just tell you, the greatest desire he has for your life is still just to know him. 
It's not to do all the right things. It's not to mass and crew all the right external markers. It's just to know him and to walk with him. And so whether you think you've ruined your life, whether you think you've gone too far off on the wrong end, realize his defining desire for you is just to know him and to walk with him, even in the midst of victory or in failure. To learn from those things and to draw nearer to his own grace as he forgives, as he reconciles, and as he moves to restore you and to continue to walk with him. That is the defining goal, really. And I think the defining marker of what true spirituality looks like. In fact, I think as you look at this, as Paul deconstructs, in a sense, counterfeit spirituality and exalts in its place, really what true spirituality looks like. I think true spirituality is marked by a singular passion and pursuit to know Jesus Christ. It's not marked by all the externals of obedience and performance that can be counterfeited and faked, but it's marked by a singular passion to know Jesus Christ that cannot be faked. It's fascinating to me, even as you look through the uh, rest of the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, notice uh, what Paul says, but thanks be to God who manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place, for we are fragrance of Christ. What is the marker of true spirituality? It is a marker that says to the rest of the world, hey, this is a a person who's been around Jesus because they smell like Jesus and they sound like Jesus. Uh, In fact, you can spend 10 minutes in Starbucks and by the time you walk out, you reek of Starbucks, all right? Uh, Because you've been in that place, you've been around that place. And so even when you leave, everyone else knows where you've been. So Paul says, for those that have spent time and been around Jesus Christ, you reek of Jesus as you take off. Which is why for some, it leads to an aroma of death and, and judgment and, and hostility. But for some, it is an aroma of life. It is, a, it is an element that draws people towards Jesus. Paul says it differently here. Or, or actually, not Paul. An audience speaking of uh, Peter and John. I love this in Acts chapter 4, verse 13. Peter and John were speaking to thousands and seeing God do amazing things. And I love this passage. It says, now as the audience, as the crowds observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, which really means they were just conceived to be idiots. Uh, The audience was amazed and they began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. How are these idiots so confident in such a public arena as they're declaring to thousands the truth of God? Everyone were clearly, clearly apparently recognizing that they were untrained, uneducated, and yet they were somehow manifesting and speaking in a way that was clear that they had not just figured this out on their own. Uh, The crowds had recognized that they had been with Jesus Ultimately, the number one marker of true spirituality is that you reek and you smell of Jesus Christ. There's a singular passion in your life to know Jesus Christ and the depth of that relationship is manifested around those that you're with as you live and as you walk in whatever vocation that you're going to walk in one day. It's not about being a pastor. It's not about being in some kind of full-time ministry role. It's that wherever you step, that your singular passion to know Jesus Christ would be manifested and would be a genuine marker of what true spirituality looks like because it is a marker that cannot be faked and cannot be counterfeited. All the external markers, even of obedience, even of all the rules and regulations can be faked, but this one cannot be. This is the number one marker of what a true, uh, genuine spirituality looks like. And yet I think for so many of us, we so often get confused as to what God is wanting from our lives and as what the world is wanting to see as well. What the world really genuinely wants to see is someone who's just caught up with a passion to know Jesus Christ and is in love with him. That is the singular, most authentic, and and, in a sense, winsome element of anything that you could say, anything that you could demonstrate to anyone in the world. That there's one that you are caught up in. There's one that you are obsessed with and and drawn to and in love with. 
for some of you guys who are dating or near to be engaged, you cannot stop talking about the person that you love, which is why your roommates are sick of it, right? Um, you know, just kidding. But I, I think there's a sense of that when you and I are absolutely in love with someone, you and I cannot stop talking about them because when we've spent time with someone that we're in love with, it spills out into the entirety of the rest of our lives. You cannot fake love. You cannot fake a relationship with Jesus Christ if it's a singular passion because the person you've spent time with will be the person that spills out in the rest of your life. I want to challenge you that I think this passage that Paul's drawing us to is, is a singular passion and a singular pursuit to know Jesus Christ. I just want to ask you this morning, is that your passion? Is that your pursuit? Is it at times easier to go and do a bunch of good things and forget to miss walking with Jesus Christ? I'll tell you, even for my own self and my own walk with the Lord, it is easier at times to prepare a sermon than it is just to walk and to draw deeper to know Jesus Christ. It is easy to talk about Jesus. It is a difficult thing to walk and to spend the time and invest to know Jesus. Uh, Philippians 3 hit me right between the eyes this week. Uh, Philippians 3 became, for me, early in a sense of my spring break plans. A, a chance to pull back and a chance to, to reconvene and recommune and to walk and to know Jesus more deeply. And so I want to ask you, as you step into spring break, I want to challenge you. I know some of you guys, your minds and your hearts are already in spring break, right? If it weren't for the test that you have this week, but you guys are already there, all right? Which is why I think it's fine to talk about your plans for spring break, all right? I simply want to ask you guys a couple questions. As you look at spring break, as you look at your own plans for spring break, some of you guys are going to be at home. Some of you guys are going to be traveling with friends. But either way, uh, by and large, you aren't going to have classes. You aren't going to have a lot of responsibilities. So hopefully you're going to have a lot of free time. And I simply want to ask you and challenge you, how are you going to spend your time? Where will you invest it? Who will you invest it with? Uh, simply put, uh, first question for you guys is, uh, what or who will you reek of over spring break? Uh, some of you guys uh, naturally, and you ought to, need to sleep a ton. Some of you guys are going to veg a ton. Some of you guys are going to have eyes that are burning red because you've been video gaming for like hours on end, all right? Um, and I think you guys need to unplug. You need that. There's an element of that that's appropriate and that's healthy as you come off the grind of school, all right? But the problem for all of us is that can go unchecked and go for the entirety of spring break, right? Uh, and, and I want to challenge you at some point in time after you've had that initial uh, overload that's been relieved is begin to think through, hey, how can you redeem the time over spring break? Uh, how are you going to spend the time? Because again, where you spend your time, who you spend it with will, will be accounted by those that you're around. What will you, in a sense, uh, what will be the aroma that emits from your life? My hope and my prayer this, this uh, spring break for you guys would be that it will be Jesus Christ that you guys will have an opportunity over stream break to get some unhurried time with Jesus. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you one of the opportunities and one of the, the goals for me is to catch up on memorizing the book of Philippians, a, a challenge that we gave to all of you guys, a challenge that I've fallen behind on, a challenge I want to pick up on. Uh, but also for me, the, really the number one goal for me over spring break is going to be to simply have some times that are undistracted, unhurried, just to sit with Jesus. Without all the, the hectic uh, pace of life, without all the demands that are on my schedule or on your schedule in the midst of that space and time, let me plead with you, let me challenge you, plan some times just to meet with Jesus. Plan some times that your phone is put away, that you're not going to be on Facebook, sometimes that people can't get a hold of you and just go and be and be quiet and just sit with Jesus. Reconvene, recommune, reconnect in the midst of that space and that time. Um, another good opportunity for some of you guys might be to simply pick up a missionary biography, find some ways, find some investments spiritually this spring break that will really re- not just redeem the time, but that will allow you to move deeper in your own walk over spring break. Because I think for so many, it can be a time of utter wastefulness. Uh, and for some, a time of impurity. As for some, a time in which you feel, as you come back from spring break, very disconnected from the Lord and from the community of God. And so lean on one another and make a plan even before you hit spring break. Uh, I know you guys are already making plans and schedules and trips, but I want to challenge 
technology or make a plan spiritually? How do you want to spend that time? What will it look like? Uh, how much of it uh, of each day do you want to invest? Schedule in a block, maybe an afternoon where you just meet with the Lord and say, hey, this afternoon is yours. I'm going to go, I'm going to be quiet. I'm going to bring some music. I'm going to bring the word of God. I'm just going to meet with you because I want to know you more deeply. So let me challenge you to make that goal yours over spring break and, and to really build some time so that you can press forward to know Jesus Christ more this spring break. Let me pray for us. Father God, we often so get caught up in amassing and accruing all kinds of externals to, uh, to make you love us um, or to make you approve of us. And Father, I pray this morning that we would realize whether we know you or not, uh, that we cannot change your perspective of us. Your son, Jesus Christ, died because he so loved the world that you gave your only son. And I, and I pray, Lord, that you would help us to realize that at the cross of Calvary, you cemented once and for all that you love us that you love us enough to give your only son, Jesus Christ. And I pray as we wrestle with our own self-worth, as we wrestle with, uh, in a sense, guilt in terms of a relationship with you, Lord, I pray that you would help us to realize that you have done all that we needed on your basis so that we could simply receive a free gift of salvation. Uh, Simply realizing that reconciliation of that relationship with you comes freely by your grace and faith in what you've done, not what we can do. And Father, I pray even for those of us who know you, Lord, I pray that you would uh, refresh us and take us back to the basics this morning. That ultimately what you desire in our lives is not that we would do a bunch of great stuff. Not that we would be some famous person or that we would achieve great things for your kingdom. But by and large, first and foremost, what you desire in our lives and our primary calling is simply to know you and to walk more deeply with you. And I pray as we approach spring break and then as we walk through spring break, Lord, I pray there would be a time for all of us that we could reconnect, that we could recommune with you that you would allow us to drink deeply from your word, that you would allow us to drink deeply in your presence and just to encounter you and to walk with you, Lord. I pray that you would allow things to slow down and that you would allow us to be diligent with that time that's going to be unhurried and and for many of us, uh, wide open, Lord. Uh, Might we honor you with the way that we walk through spring break and I pray that you would allow us just to see you afresh, uh, have a fresh delight in your presence and a fresh delight in your glory and your name, Lord. Father, I pray you do that for all of us, Lord. And in your precious and holy name we pray, amen. You guys all have a great week, great spring break, and we'll see you guys after the first week of classes. So you guys have a great break. We'll see you all soon.